Few historic moments continue to reverberate through our nation quite like the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. But despite the way history lives on, there are some parts that will always be challenging for us to face as a nation. Joe McGill, the founder of the Slave Dwelling Project, joined me this week to discuss the work he does to shed light on some of the most painful yet powerful places in America. Join us for a discussion on the value of remembering all aspects of our past, from slave dwellings to Confederate monuments, on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today by Mr. Joseph McGill, who is a history consultant for Magnolia Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina, as well as the founder of the Slave Dwelling Project. Prior to this current position, Joe was a field officer with the National Trust for Historic Preservation, was the executive director of the African American Museum in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, was the director of history and culture at Penn Center, and has done a lot of different work with regard to historic preservation, but his current position really is something exciting and something we want to talk about and really an important project, the Slave Dwelling Project. Joe, it's a pleasure to have you on PreserveCast today. Pleasure to uh, have this opportunity to present. So we would love to know more about you. I, I mean, it, it your bio is dripping with um, different exciting and important historical experiences. How did you get into this? Why Why the love of history? Where did you grow up and, and what was your path to preservation? I grew up in a very small town of King Street, South Carolina, Williamsburg County. And my, I guess my gateway into history, at least my aha moment for loving history was uh, when I was in the military, I visited the home where Anne Frank hid of the Germans during World War II in Amsterdam. And from that point forward, I knew that places were important, uh, especially preserving those places. It didn't really matter what the history was associated with those places, whether it's something to be happy about or sad about. Having the place in place is important to kind of jog that memory and uh, know that it is important to preserve these places. So I, you know, I apply that process, that thinking process to preserving slave dwellings. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And why don't you tell us a little bit about the Slave Dwelling Project itself? I mean, what is it that you're working on right now? What should people know about the Slave Dwelling Project if they don't know anything at all? The Slave Dwelling Project is a project that's very simple. It's a very simple concept of just finding historic places and, and spending the night in them. But in this case, these historic places are places that we normally don't think about because it is a sad part of our history that we tend to want to forget. It takes us out of that comfort zone. Uh, we as Americans, we are preservationists and we preserve buildings. We preserve antebellum buildings, those buildings that were built prior to the Civil War. A lot of those places are associated with slavery, but 
we as preservationists, we as historians tend to want to preserve those places of the enslavers, not those who were enslaved. So this project identified those places wherever they are, and we asked the owners if we could spend the night in these spaces. And the attention garnered from performing that simple act is leveraged to uh, convince property owners that it's a good thing to preserve these places, not only preserve them, but interpret them, maintain them, and sustain them with the intent of them telling the stories of those people who were enslaved. So what you describe as the simple act of of sleeping in a place really has had a very physical result. So there are examples, I guess, that you could point to where buildings that maybe were on a path towards not being preserved are now preserved. Yeah, there are those examples. For the past seven years, I've been sleeping in these dwellings. And, you know, the Slave Dwelling Project can probably take credit for some of these places still being on the landscape. But going into this thing, I realized that a lot of these places were hidden in plain sight, if you will. Uh, A lot of these places are currently being used for things. The buildings have evolved and they're currently being used for things that one would not think that this place has a history that started out housing enslaved people. You know, some of these places are under various ownerships. Some are privately owned. Some are owned by nonprofits. Some are museum ready and they serve as such. But because these places evolved, because they were in use long after slavery existed, you know, these places are still with us. So, of course, our intent is to encourage these owners, these stewards of these places to allow these places to help tell the stories of the enslaved because some of the places are no longer on this earth because there was somebody in his past that didn't want it to be there. And some of those places are not here because they weren't built with the best material to start with, especially if they were intended for the field hands that worked on plantations. But some of these places were associated with the nice mansion, the big house, you know, that still exists on some of these properties. And they are used as, you know, for various things, garages and storage spaces and pool houses and rental spaces and offices. Our desire is that not only should they be used as such, you know, these places should be allowed to evolve. You know, I have no problem with the things that some of these places are used for. I just have a problem when there are folks out there that refuse to tell the true history associated with these places. So what do you say to someone who says that, well, this is a really uncomfortable piece of our history and we shouldn't focus on it? Your response to that seems to be the exact opposite. Is that right? Yeah, it has to be the exact opposite. And if it's not the exact opposite, we're going to get into the situation that we're now currently in with the Confederate monuments. Yeah, you know, those monuments are offensive to some, but I don't think there should be a total eradication as we have done, been doing. You know, there's folks under the cover of darkness taking down these monuments without uh, a full discourse, you know, on the subject matter. Just as uh, these Confederate monuments portray a a sad part of our history that some don't want to deal with. So the slave dwellings, you know, that's the part of our history that some don't want to deal with, but I don't want them to go away. You know, I want them to be there for us to remember, you know, we as a nation, we're a great nation. Yes, but we had some flaws along the way. 
And these slave dwellings can help us interpret some of that flaw that was attached to that institution of slavery, you know, just as Confederate monuments could be tools too to show us, again, we were a nation that along the way committed some atrocities. So we need to vet these slave dwellings and these monuments accordingly. Yeah, and it seems like the slave dwellings, I mean, I think largely the preservation community agrees, yeah, there's no question these have to be preserved and they have to stay and they're sort of rooted in the landscape and they're important reminders of our country and where we were. There is not total agreement on the Confederate monument issue. You know, there are those who say it's such a heinous thing that it should be torn down. There are those who sort of say what you say, which is they're an important part of our history and perhaps should be better interpreted, but, you know, maybe all shouldn't be removed. Some people say they should go to museums. Do you find that you, the Slave Dwelling Project and and Joe McGill are, are being called on to talk about these issues more and more because of the monument issue now? Yeah. In fact, uh, in about two weeks from now, I'll be going to Poplar Forest to serve on a panel about the monuments, you know, the situation of where some of these mayors of these cities are taking these monuments down under the cover of darkness. You know, in New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, the mayor of New Orleans, is a good example. You know, they took those monuments down and there was some public discourse about it. uh, And they went ahead and, and took the monuments down. But I think one thing that I have a problem with is, you know, while they removed the Confederate monuments, they left Andrew Jackson right where he is. And, you know, who's more offensive to the Native American population than, you know, than Andrew Jackson? So, you know, we we start these things and I don't think we think them through because there are a lot of monuments now and, and statues that are getting caught up in the mix. You know, right there in Annapolis, Maryland, they took down the statue of that uh, Supreme Court judge that ruled in the uh, Dred Scott decision. Right. Roger Tawney. Yeah. Yeah. Slavery was a, was a law of the land at that time. So he ruled accordingly. So why? You know, why is it that he got caught up in this Confederate monument, knee-jerk reaction just to remove monuments? You know, why are we questioning now the monuments that are now uh, in New York City, you know, Christopher Columbus and, and a lot of those other monuments that are, are standing there? You know, they've been getting caught up in all this. And if we make these decisions today, will, will some generation in the future look up at Mount Rushmore uh, and say that there are two slaveholding presidents up there? You know, let's remove them. Or will they say that, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C., Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were slaveholding presidents? So let's, you know, let's move that obelisk. Let's remove this monument to, you know, to Thomas Jefferson because they were slaveholding owning presidents. So we got to, we got to kind of think of it in that sense. Just as we have the power now to make decisions and change the landscape by removing monuments, you know, our uh, children of the future will have those same decisions to make about monuments that are currently existing now and they'll have the, the you know decision in the future to decide whether they should stay or go. Well, I, I appreciate your opinion on this. It's interesting to hear you talk about it and, and obviously you're really passionate about it. Why don't we take a quick break here and when we come back, we'll talk more about the Slave Dwelling Project, how it works, maybe some examples of places you've stayed and, and what's coming up. And we'll do that right when we return here on PreserveCast. You've got questions, we've got answers. Let's try them out here. Marcus from Reisterstown writes, are there other places in Maryland like Community Forklift, which we heard about in a previous episode? That's a little far away from me. 
Well, Marcus, let's try and save you a trip. We don't want you driving too far. Loading Dock and Second Chance, both located in Baltimore. There's also Brick and Board that's run by our friends at Humanum that's also in Baltimore. Hopefully that helps you out and you can get out there and get what you need. Mary Beth from Virginia wrote in to ask another question. She was just listening to the episode about moving the Taco Bell and was wondering, what's the oldest restaurant in Maryland? Well, Mary Beth, we haven't eaten at it, but we've done some research and we'd like to. Stephen and I have taken a look at this and we found that Cotton Geats in Cumberland used to be the oldest operating family-owned restaurant in the state. They opened in 1880, but unfortunately, you missed them. They closed this year in January. Less of a restaurant, but more of a bar, if that's your flavor, is the Horse You Came In On Saloon, located in historic Fells Point in Baltimore. Of course, this is also the place that's remembered as potentially one of the haunts of Edgar Allan Poe. The building and the name go back to 1775, and it was open before, during, and after Prohibition. You figure that one out. Zach from Chicago writes, I just started listening to this podcast. Editor's note. Thanks, Zach. I've always liked history, but I'm just getting into understanding preservation. What does a site have to do to become a landmark? That's actually a really great question, Zach, and it depends on what you're talking about. The National Register of Historic Places is something that you get on by filing uh, a form and, and doing your research through your state historic preservation office, which then gets passed on to the National Park Service. And you can file to become a national register. You could file to have an entire area, a district created, or you could go for the, the big daddy of preservation, the National Historic Landmark designation, which is reserved for really the creme de la creme of historic places and sites. But there's also local landmarking processes. And in Chicago, of course, there is a local landmarking effort as well. So it depends on what you want to do, how you want to do it, and who you'd like to talk to. Hmm. Gilbert from Walkersville writes in, can we please get a PreserveCast episode surrounding ghost stories or sightings or maybe even unsolved mysteries in Maryland for Halloween October? Hold your horses, Gilbert. October is coming up, and without giving too much away, we might have something up our PreserveCast sleeve for you. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org, and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined by Joe McGill, who is the history consultant for the Magnolia Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina, and also the founder of the Slave Dwelling Project. And we've been hearing from Joe about why these places matter and his thoughts on recent decisions to remove Confederate monuments and, and beyond. But why don't we talk zero in on the Slave Dwelling Project? What happens? So you show up at a site, maybe give us an example site or a place that's been really powerful. Who do you sleep with? You know, how do they, how do they get to the site? How does the night unfold? Well, they're, they're all different. My most recent sleepover was this past weekend. I went to Anonkin in Warsaw, Virginia. And it's unique because there are no slave dwellings there. In fact, the, the big house, the mansion is in ruins. But they're putting forth that effort to give access to the ruins through some uh, very special means of placing plexiglass and a series of, of other 
items are ways to give the, the visiting public access to those ruins. We slept at the place where the slave dwellings would have been located on the property. We all pitched tents and and we all we all slept there. You know, a lot of these places, the original slave dwellings are there. So we we sleep there in those spaces. You know, we have spaces also like Monticello and Montpelier where the dwellings have been recreated. So we sleep in places, you know, like those also. Now, as far as getting the people to join me, you know, I don't sleep in these places alone anymore. People do stand in line and sometimes they take their numbers and, you know, they wait their turn. You know, that's how popular the program has gotten. It's more than just a sleepover. A part of the process is that, uh, you know, we have a conversation, a conversation about slavery and the legacy that it has left on this nation. And this property, these properties that give us access, they're the perfect setting to have those conversations. And the people that join us, you know, the demographics, it, it, it's a wide spectrum. We get black, we get whites, we get seniors, we get youth. Some folks form themselves and they get an exclusive. Some groups are just a mixture of people who come together specifically for that purpose of coming to that place to have that conversation, to have that uh, sleeping experience at this site. So it's uh, the popularity of, of this program uh, is increasing. So how many sites have you actually slept at? Have you, have you kept track over, I mean, seven years of this, and you're pretty busy. So, I mean, how, how often have you done this? Do you, do you know the total number at this point? Yeah, as far as sites are concerned, we're approaching 100. We may have uh, reached that number of 100 already. Now, as far as sleepovers, the number of sleepovers exceeds 100 because some of the places I've gone to twice, you know, like Holly Springs, Mississippi, I think my longest tenure out of state is there. I think we've gone there six consecutive years. Now, as far as the site that I've slept at the most is the place I'm currently employed at on a part-time basis, Magnolia Plantation and Gardens. I've slept uh, in the safe dwellings there seven times. In, in October 7th and 8th, it's going to be eight and nine for that site. You know, that site has allowed us to use it as a classroom, as I, as I want to do at a lot of these places. You know, I want a lot of these dwellings to live and breathe. I want folks to come in and above and beyond having the opportunity to tour these places during the daytime. I want them to have that opportunity when the dust settles, when the cloud has gone away from these places. I want them to have that opportunity to come and interact with these spaces and get more in-depth into the, the lives, of the way of life of the enslaved on these properties. And the project now is giving folks those opportunities. And we'll get, we're taking it to a new level. Last year, the South Carolina Humanities Council gave us a grant that allowed us to implement a program called Inalienable Rights, Living History Through the Enslaved, where living historians come in the night before we sleep in the slave dwellings and we get up that next morning, we, we don our period outfits and we have demonstrations, cooking demonstrations, blacksmithing demonstrations, and then we intersperse that with lectures and storytelling. And so you, you mentioned sort of you're taking it to the next level. What's next for the Slave Dwelling Project? I mean, right now, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the individual who's staying overnight in all of these places. Do you think it'll go beyond Joe McGill and that there will be people, maybe more people from the Slave Dwelling Project, you know, more staff or people sort of 
organically doing this across the country? What's next? Well, right now I am that constant. There are some folks within the organization, some board members that uh, have gone to other sites and they have been that point person representing the Slave Dwelling Project, carrying out our cohesive mission. Now, there are a few sites like Brattonsville that they have done this thing on their own. They interact with a descendant community, a descendant of the enslaved community, and they have done this thing um, without me. There are sites considering doing that. But what I recommend to sites is that if indeed they want to take on an idea you know, like this, at least bring us in for the first one to three years so that we can do it together you know, before they attempt to you know, try to, to, to do something similar on their own, because we can certainly, you know, we've been at this thing. We know how it works. We know the potentials of success, and we know the potential of failure. You know, we want to come in, we, we want to work with these sites, but eventually we want these sites to be able to do this thing on their own. Right. And to grow the movement of, of doing this, because it, it feels like the more people who are doing it, the better, because the conversations that you're talking about are, are important. And, you know, you hear a lot of people nowadays say, well, we should have a discourse, we should have a discussion about these issues. And, and I sometimes wonder, like, well, where does that happen? And, and I feel like a discourse on, on race and slavery, what better place to do that than in one of these places that's rooted in that history with someone like yourself to lead that conversation? Yes, and you are correct. And every time we sleep in one of these places, we write blogs. Well, I say we, you know, I write a blog, but I ask the participants to contribute to that blog. So if anyone were to go to the website, slavedwellingproject.org, they can pull up all those accounts of all the past days. And not only can they read my thoughts, but they can read about those who contributed to the blog because it's all there. And speaking of people getting more involved, here in Maryland, you've got a project coming up this fall in Dorchester County. What's going to be taking place there and, and how can people get involved in that one? Yeah, Maryland is helping us taking this thing to the next level because you will uh, encounter our program, Inalienable Rights, Living History Through the Eyes of the Enslaved. It's going to be one of those rare times where we've taken it out of the state, you know, bringing it to where, where the people are. And we want to try to do more than that. So in Dorchester County, Maryland, I think the second weekend uh, in Dorchester County, Maryland, uh, we'll be traveling there and visiting some sites associated with Harriet Tubman. And that will be a time that is available for others to come and join us. Now, just last week, I was at uh, St. Mary's College in Maryland to do an event there. So I've um, this project has touched Maryland quite often. Charterly Plantation is another site. Uh, where we've spent the night. And what about, I mean, we talked a lot about the South, but there is a legacy of slavery in the North, particularly prior to the Revolution. Have you been north of the Mason-Dixon? Yes, I have. Of 19 states so far in the portfolio, seven of those states have been northern states. Wow. I usually get the most pushback when I talk about this project from northerners because they certainly are aware of all that went down in the South that's associated with slavery. Of course, you know, slavery in the South lasted a lot longer than it did in, in the North, but it did happen in the North. And we also have to think about when after the revolution, those Northern states started to abolish slavery, we got to still factor in the complicity involved. You know, the fact that they still own the insurance companies, the banks, the ships, they were building the ships in those Northern states. And they had the factories that were 
adding value to the cotton that was picked in the South. So we still have to factor all that in when we think about the involvement of those northern states in that institution of slavery. Right. There's definitely a a legacy there to tell as well. Well, Joe, it's been a pleasure. If people want to get in touch with you or they want to learn more about the Slave Dwelling Project, where would you send them? I would send them to the website, slavedwellingproject.org, but the project is most active on Facebook, you know, the Slave Dwelling Project. Okay. And for the younger minds, there's also Instagram and Twitter. Okay, perfect. And we don't let anyone leave PreserveCast without answering the most difficult question for any preservationist, which is, what is your favorite historic building or place? And for a guy who's traveled to 19 states visiting places of extreme importance, this is probably even more difficult. But we ask the tough questions here, Joe, and we want to know what your answer is. Well, you know, um, I, I guess one would have to think that I would be thinking about a slave dwelling. And, and of course, they're all special to me. But you know, I, I talked about going into that place where Anne Frank hid from the Germans. That's near and dear to me because that was my aha moment for uh, making me a preservationist. But I've also visited the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and I think that's the place that made me so emotional. It made me, you know, have to man up and, you know, to step into that spot where this great man of Dr. Martin Luther King was, where his life was snuffed out. I think that's the spot that has done it for me the most, that that's the one that stays with me the most. That has to be, you know, on my very short list. And on that very short list, right now it's vying for number one. Joe, it's been a pleasure. I hope to see you when you're up in Maryland. And thank you for all the good work that you're doing on a project of extreme importance. You're doing great work and we appreciate it. Thank you. All right. You are welcome. Wait just a second. Before you leave us today, I'd like to talk to you about something very important. You see, Preservation Maryland is a nonprofit, and that's the organization that produces PreserveCast. We do all of this by stitching together grants, membership donations, and donations from private foundations. But it's never enough. And like all nonprofits, we work hard to raise more dollars to support this program and many more. We do things on the ground, we do things in Annapolis, and we do a lot of work around the state. If you've enjoyed PreserveCast and you've been a listener, we would love to have your support. You can go to preservationmaryland.org and click on Become a Member, or click on Donate, or go to presmd.org join and join. Either way, you'll be helping support not only PreserveCast, but the preservation of important places across the state of Maryland. Thanks. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. 
To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving. <laughs>